There's a quote that I love at the beginning of the Journal of Advertising Research article which is most often attributed to Henry Ford, but he says a man who stops advertising to save money is like a man who stops the clock to save time. Welcome back everybody to the Uncensored CMO. Now on this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Nicole Hartnett from the Ehrenberg Bass Institute. Dr. Nicole has just published some really interesting new findings on what happens when brands go dark. Of course, we all battled through last year with some really big decisions to make on what do we do when we're facing a global pandemic. We don't know what's happened to our market and many, many brands did what makes a lot of sense really, which is cut advertising, pause spend um, and effectively go dark from a media perspective but is that the right thing to do now obviously for some brands they had no choice right they were literally in uh, you know in, in emergency saving their business from disaster but for many other brands they didn't necessarily have to go dark now we know from previous recessions that what you do during a recession or um, economic downturn has quite a profound impact on the long-term success of your brands now actually when last year when I was looking at the data to try and inform myself on what the best response to a you know to a recession would be I struggled to find some good data on it there was some anecdotal evidence you know a lot of people had written about previous recessions but there wasn't really a robust piece of work that measures what happens when brands stop advertising until now and actually Dr Nicole Hartner has done an incredible job looking at the evidence for what happens when brands stop advertising, what, what impact it makes for small brands versus big brands, whether you're growing or declining beforehand. And it's a really good piece of work that got a lot of traction three or four weeks ago when it uh, went out there. So I got in touch with Nicole and wanted to find out more about this research and understand what advice she would give to advertisers out there who have either gone dark or are considering customer advertising and the advantages of those brands that decide to continue invest through recessions. So without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Dr. Nicole Hartnett from Ehrenberg Bass. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you so much, John. It's a pleasure to be here. We've got a bit of a danger of getting all nerdy about advertising, of course. But uh, one thing I was going to ask you about is obviously you spend a lot of your time thinking about advertising and thinking about what works in marketing and so on. What happens when you see adverts yourself? Do you look at adverts in a different light now that you know so much about what makes them work? I think that there are two answers to this question. There are ads that get me excited or ads that make me really annoyed. And at the Institute, we share these kinds of experiences. And so even just last week, I shared an ad for Subway, which was a really good example. I have no idea how effective it is, but it had no direct branding. It relied entirely on distinctive assets. And, you know, you pick up those kinds of things. So you definitely do look at ads quite differently. But I'm not going to say I'm a great judge intuitively of, of what works and what doesn't. And based on my research, I think that's a pretty safe position <laughs> to have. It is. Because it's ultimately all about odds. And that's the language that I use a lot nowadays. There is a chance you will be successful and, and you want to know when you are taking on a greater risk. If you are taking risk, you want to know about it. If you're going against the odds, are you taking a calculated risk or not? Or are you going with the odds and therefore willing to perhaps invest a, a, a greater sum or, or have an easier sell in to your business? Yeah, no, it makes complete sense. I was really intrigued looking at your career. Your PhD was in, you know, when advertising works or what makes advertising work, which I thought was a thoroughly useful topic matter because most people, when I, you know, that, that do sort of swanky PhDs, often you're kind of scratching your head going, <laughs> and how does this help? But it was brilliant to see, uh, see such a useful topic. But something that caught my eye in that was you were looking at how, what marketers themselves think would make a good ad versus what actually works in reality, which I thought was, was a, a brilliant view. Because, you know, when we work in marketing, obviously, we like to assume we're the experts, but it's very often the case that actually what the general population enjoy and respond to in advertising is not necessarily what we think. Yeah, no, that was a, a fun study. So what we what I did there was we gave marketers and ad agency professionals pairs of ads, one that was shown to be very sales successful and the other ad sales unsuccessful relative to category norms and asked marketers, can you tell me which one's which? And so we matched the pairs. They were for the same brand in the same market or for similarly sized brands in the same market. And what I found was that you could effectively replace your marketing department with a coin and have similar <laughs> outcomes. We only got it right 51% of the time, which is effectively chance, which wasn't 
you know, a good story to publish, but these were quick, intuitive judgments. And there are reasons why the factors that surround advertising can undermine that. So we were looking at sales and and many marketers are quite focused on intermediate variables, which don't Mm -hmm. often correlate with sales. You know, ads feature lots and lots of different creative devices, any single ad does and and if you're using a simple heuristic of you know this technique works well rarely is a technique 100% bulletproof and works all the time so that can undermine you but then also you know a good creative tactic well, if, if it's paired with a one that's undermining that, like counteracting it well then it sort of cancels one another out and yeah. you're stuffed. It's a hard job to predict a good ad. Yeah, essentially a a slight pivot, actually. But I did I did my degree dissertation. I I studied economics and I did my degree dissertation was there was a book in the late 1970s called A Random Walk Down Wall Street. And it had this lovely concept that basically that a blindfolded monkey throwing darts at the Wall Street Journal could pick a stock just as well as the most highly paid Wall Street analyst type thing. And, and, and so this, this guy did this study to prove that the blindfolded monkey was just as good an investment tactic as the, as the experts. And it kind of made me smile because it sounds exactly like your 51, 49% results. And uh, I got myself into trouble actually recently because at System 1, we test most ads that air in the UK and US. And uh, we tested the recent Can Lion uh, winners. And in fact, the Can Lion winners this year for the first time in our kind of predictive measure are no more successful than, you know, than the database average. So I, I started my article for Campaign Magazine reciting the uh, the old story of the blindfolded monkey throwing darts that, you know, you, you know, the general public would be as good as a Can Lion jury sort of thing. It, it appears that even the very, very best experts themselves can can sometimes not pick the same winner. Now, of course, you know, and in fact, I had the eminent James Herman on the podcast last week as well to talk about it. And of course, what we got into is it depends on the criteria. And your intermediate metric point is absolutely right, actually, because what he was saying, of course, we can is they're they're looking at creativity in terms of possibly breaking the mold or challenging convention or influencing society as they're looking at some other things they're not necessarily looking at the hard measures Mm. of results but of course the point that I think he and I both kind of came to is we should be (laughs) you Mm. know it's fine to talk about intermediate measures and it's great to talk maybe short term and all that sort of thing but at the end of the day we're employed to grow brands and it's very important to be evidence-based when we're looking at, at how we do that. Absolutely. But in in that study, we did dig in a bit and tried to understand, well, were there certain groups of people that had better intuitive judgment based on their role or, or their experience? And to your point, when you said experts, we sort of assume tenure or, you know, how long yeah. your career has been will lead you to be more of an expert and therefore have better judgment. But there's lots of evidence that refutes that in different fields. And I showed that in this particular circumstance as well. It didn't matter whether you had less than one year experience or more than 15 years in experience in marketing. They were similarly poor judges on average. <laughs> but what did come out was that marketing insights people were a little bit better than than marketing operations. And okay. that's possibly because they're exposed to more research reports and, and right. the like to be able to start doing the detective work. Of, they can look objectively, perhaps, mm. and yeah, start to spot them. And the other one was whether people had experience working on the category. So we did have people making judgments on say they worked on a biscuit brand, but they were making judgments on butter ads. And the people working on biscuit brands were slightly better judges at judging biscuit ads than they were at judging something that they hadn't worked on directly. And perhaps that is because they better understand the purchasing mechanisms and category entry points, which when they see them in the ads... So we don't quite have to fire ourselves just yet. We're, we're okay for the moment. There's, no. There's some reason to employ people, you know, yeah. in the category. Good. Hopefully we're better than, that's the mon- a than the monkey throwing darts. The monkey the monkey throwing darts, brilliantly. Oh, yeah. well, that's, that's so interesting. I, I thought I'd also ask you about, because you did a lot of work, didn't you, on distinctive assets as well, which um, I, I think is one of those topics that 
deserves more time and attention and effort actually from marketers because they're incredibly powerful. But ju- just for the people listening, can you d- describe sort of how you define a distinctive asset, what they are and why they're so important to, to marketing? Absolutely. So a distinctive asset is a, a device that does not carry the brand's name, but is linked to the brand uniquely or exclusively. So it can be anything from a logo to a character. It can be a packaging shape. It can be a color. It can be a face. Which would be more or less effective? So if you're looking at, you know, what does the science tell you? What sure. should I be thinking about using if I'm, if I'm a brand? The fact that there are lots of different asset types is, is kind of a blessing but also a bit of a burden. And it is kind of tempting to go, well, if I had to prioritise one, what should it... And the evidence uh, from research led by one of my colleagues, Ella Ward, she looked at specifically the uniqueness of distinctive assets. So there are two metrics that we assess distinctive assets on. There's fame, so how well-known they are in association with the brand. But then also distinctive assets can attract brand responses that aren't the target brand. So you can say what airlines are red and legitimately, you know, multiple airlines can come to mind. So what share of those associations does the target brand have? And so she looked at, are there any types that more ownable or skew to being more unique than others? And she found that characters and logos were particular stand in that space, but it really does depend on more than simply just the type. It does depend on the inherent design and and arguably characters can be more unique from the outset than a tagline in Mm. terms of their creation. But, you know, as you're designing them, you really want to counter program against your competitors. But the other part of it is you also want to avoid saddling your distinctive assets with a message or meaning that can result in your asset converging with those of your competitors. So if you're using your asset to signal something like health or wealth or or something like that if that's an attractive message to your competitors they're going to execute and find ways of presenting that same information and so that becomes mental competition for your asset Mm. and and can be an unforeseen challenge Uh, it's fascinating this subject a colleague of mine orlando did a study looking at i think about 25 years of awards at, at the award submissions at the ipa and back in the mid 1990s, about 40, 41 percent of all award submissions contained a character or a familiar scenario. So like a repeatable scenario for the brand or a character. And that has dropped to around 10 percent now. So a mm. fourfold decline. It does feel like kind of characters in particular are sort of less fat. You know, I'm a bit older than you, but when I was growing up, you know, all, you know, like Cocoa Pops and, you know, all, all the cereals had their own characters and that was part of the fun and you could collect the toys and, you know, it was amazing. But the other thing we noticed on the System 1 database as well, the uh, only 7% of ads in the UK contain any form of character and only 4% of ads in the US contain any form of character. And, and yet your research shows it's, pr- it's one of the most unique ways or it's one of the most unique distinctive assets one of the most effective ones too why is it out of fashion when there's a lot of good evidence to support it i don't know maybe brand owners are taking themselves a bit too seriously perhaps i'm similarly baffled to you as to the sometimes blasé attitude there is towards that's just a logo that's just a tagline or that's just a character when really They should be important to marketers and they are important to consumers, not consciously important in the sense that they're the reasons they buy brands because they're not, but they're about facilitating the buying process and making it really easy. It's all Mm. about brand recognition. So looking and sounding and feeling like you and no one else. And, And from a marketing perspective, well, that helps you stand out. But from a consumer perspective, that helps them find you whether that's yeah. in an advertising context or whether that's on a shelf. So it's about reducing cognitive load. We've got this r- really good example, actually, of doing it well. It's in the UK. There's an insurance brand called Churchill, and they've got this kind of you know, old dog as their kind of character that sort of you know, wobbles around and, and got this kind of grumbly voice. And, uh, and it's very cute as well. But uh, the direct line who owned, owned the Churchill brand did this ad last year where you got Churchill on a skateboard kind of cruising through the street to this lovely soundtrack. Now, if you think about it, you're selling insurance and they've got a dog on a skateboard. You know, if, if you walked in and you went, what are these 
you know, what are they playing at here? You know, putting a dog on a skateboard. But the dog is so closely associated with Churchill, the brand. And of course, and, you know, they had lovely music and, you know, it was a really beautiful, beautiful 30 seconds. But what was interesting is that we tested it on, on our System 1 database. The five second version did just as well. Mm. And in fact, it's very, it, what we find in our research is incredibly rare for five and 10 second versions of ads to perform as well as 30. So 30 seems to be the, you know, the optimum, le- you know, create connection, build emotion and create memory and so on. But actually, because the dog was so immediately recognizable, you kind of, you know, it, it actually worked incredibly effectively in, in just five seconds. So it also, in, in direct lines example, would save them a ton of media spend as well because they mm. could, you know, they could create those mental connections and associations, you know, within a few seconds rather than having to use 30. That, that is one of the benefits you can leverage when you have created a really strong asset. So very famous, very unique. Most assets aren't there. And so for those brands that have them, well, in the case of characters, I was just thinking about it. What would help an asset? If a marketing team were going to invest in an asset, two things that they need to consider are its flexibility and also its potential for longevity. So there is this sort of addiction to change with advertising, you know, new campaign, new idea, new messaging, perhaps new branding. And and assets, longevity is a really important factor in the ability to build uh, a strong asset because it takes time to let the market learn the connection between your asset and your brand such that it becomes strong enough that it automatically triggers your brand. And so you need it to be flexible so you can use it in different storylines or, or your creative team can be inspired to do different things with it. And, and sometimes I think characters put marketers and agencies off because it kind of locks you into something because characters typically are woven into the story. They can come in early, which is really important from a branding perspective to, to get that attention, that fleeting attention. And perhaps that's why some people are a bit standoffish with them. They want the ability to be more flexible than a, than a character will allow. But I would argue that characters are inherently very flexible. They're, they're massively, aren't they? Mm. They're huge. I think your hypothesis there is absolutely spot on. In, in, in all the teams I've managed over the years, the turnover of brand managers, uh, marketing directors is enormous. So I, I would be guessing the average brand managers enroll for 18 months, which is insane when you think about it, you know, because it, it can take easily six to nine months just to understand the brand get your head around your audience you know get your strategy together make sure your agencies are in the right position all that kind of thing and then to move on before you've even had a year of effectively executing the plan you come up with I just think is insane and so the temptation often and I think the length of tenure of agencies as well is getting shorter. So as what you have is you've got the, the brand managers turning over quicker, you've got the agency relationships getting shorter and more transactional. So what happens is everyone's kind of reinventing all the time, aren't they? They're changing. And yet the most powerful thing you can do is probably not change. And yet, in fact, it's quite funny because at System 1, we, we often, you know, we often pitch for ad testing work. And one of the rather cheeky lines I often use is, I'll, I'll save you 50% of your entire budget. And they look at me and go, what are you talking about, John? That's crazy. And I said, well, on our database, 50% of ads don't work. They, they have no measurable impact at all on the brand's short or long-term success. So the first thing I'll do is go back historically over all the ads you've ever made and just tell you the ones that don't work. Find the ones that do work and you can put back on air the stuff that works, that uses all those you know, you know, memory structures from the past and triggers all that kind of thing. And then uh, you can reduce your team by half as well. You know, it doesn't always go down well, but I can't like imagine why. Function. I know. Yeah, do yourself out of a job. But, yeah. you know, there's, but there is an element of, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, marketing departments have got a responsibility because they are managing, the, you know, they're managing the assets of the company and they're spending usually the biggest discretionary spend that organization has got to spend. So you're in a very privileged position, you know, and you're responsible for the brand. And therefore, why wouldn't you think about the assets you've got, you know, over time, the characters, the, you know, the, you know, the ideas and so on and, and use those responsibly. And also, it's very often madness to change agency and, and spend money on a new idea when you've got something in the locker already. That go- In fact, actually, I've just finished writing an article for a campaign in the US. There's a, there's a hotel, I don't know if you come across hotels.com. 
But they've had this idea that's run for 10 years called Cap- is Captain Obvious, this kind of character that sort of pops up in, in lots of different scenes. And interestingly, Hotels.com have just changed agency and the new agency have kept the, have kept the distinctive asset and, and even kept the creative idea itself, but executed it in fresh ways. And actually, I thought that's really unusual because yeah. usually when you change an agency, you're doing it for a reason, right? You're going, right, we need a change of direction. We need fresh, you know, creative in- input. And actually, I thought, you know what? They, they should get some proper kudos for, for, for actually recognizing what you know which is the power of a good distinctive asset, you know, to, and using that rather than changing it all. Yes, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's, let's get on to, obviously, you know, you, you published your most recent work, When Brands Stop Advertising, and uh, it, it, it seemed to get a lot of traction, certainly. I don't know if my LinkedIn was anything to go by, and, and I'd love to hear some more, but I think it was something like the third most read LinkedIn post I've done. And it just got an amazing amount of traction. And thank you, by the way, for, for jumping in on the discussion as well. That was, that was super helpful. But how, how did it, first of all, you know, what's the reaction been? And has it has gone as far wide as you, as you expect? The reaction has been predominantly very positive. And it has been getting a lot of attention, which has been a bit of a surprise, to be honest, uh, partly because this project, it, it, I don't mean this to sound negative but it's a bit like old news for us because we we shared these findings with our institute sponsors more than three years ago and the article was accepted by the journal of advertising research more than a year ago so i've been waiting quite patiently to be able to talk (laughs) more publicly about this for quite a while but the release of the report the institute report we've since gotten almost thirty thousand unique visitors to our website to read the report, which for a small brand like the Ehrenberg Bass Institute yeah. is pretty cool. And it's also got now sponsors talking about it again, because when we released it, it, it didn't cause a really big stir at the time. You know, maybe it was a big news day and we got our timing wrong. And, and now the it's a bit serendipitous and the timing is right because it has been swept up in a lot of brands cutting advertising recently. But most people have been very interested and supportive my, my, my experience has sort of been, I suppose, my anecdotal experiences. Years ago, working on some sort of larger brands in the UK, very often the temptation, particularly for PLCs, when you've got to post quarterly profits and give dividends to shareholders, there was often this temptation to sort of go dark, I suppose the phrase might be, for a year and kind of get away with it. You know, so, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd very often sit there and have conversations amongst all the sort of, you know, brand directors around the table and there'd be the annual fight for resource, you know, and the, the company would, the company I was working for then, would invest about five or 6% of its turnover back into advertising and promotion, which is fairly low actually for, you know, for, for the kind of a major branded player. But what that meant was, is you're all fighting for resources. The temptation was always, rather than to spread it thinly, was to go, okay, we're going we're gonna to go dark on this particular brand for a year and then we'll come back the next year sort of thing. So I've certainly been in all those debates where you, you, you've been fighting your corner. Of course, the, and I think what your research will go on to say is you don't see the impact immediately. So the problem is you think you've got away with it. You know, the next quarter you go, oh, actually sales are, are still doing okay. So what happens is, that the organization thinks they've got away with it and, and therefore they pat themselves on the back and go, aren't we clever sort of thing. And because you're always in this short term quarterly and annual cycle, you remain in this sort of, you don't look at the long term. And I think that's partly why what you did, and it's safe from my point, was so good. And then the second thing, of course, which I know everybody listening will uh, really empathize with, was of course 18 months ago when the pandemic started. You know, whereas before maybe brands would go, you know, go through highs and lows and lean years and, and investment years and you'd have the kind of debates. The difference 18 months ago was people were facing stark decisions and the stark decisions were how do we keep the lights on? If you're in a category that was retail, for example, or you're in a category where suddenly behavior changes dramatically happened sometimes you had no choice but uh, and other times it's more that you just didn't know what's going to happen and certainly when you know system one where, where we do test advertising that's kind of primarily what we do we found a 50 percent drop in our business overnight from advertisers mostly from advertisers actually freezing they just went ah we don't know what's going to happen so they kind of you know hit, hit the pause button but what i noticed was you know because we were thinking what do we do to respond to this and then we thought well actually our role in this is probably to give people confidence to advertise, firstly, but second, confidence in how to advertise. So how to, because of course, everyone was going, the world's changed. You know, 
consumers are different and they're not going to think like they did before and things, you know. And what we did is we actually retested 100 ads that had just aired from before the pandemic and we tested them like two months later and we looked at how consistent people's reaction to advertising actually was. So that was one thing. So creatively, we're able to answer, you know, answer that question in terms of what can I say? And interestingly enough, people were saying to me things like, but John, surely we can't show people in social situations while we're in lockdown. And I'm like, no, no, that's exactly what you should show people because that's what we're missing. That's what we want. You know, it's like, it's, it, weirdly, it's the it's the opposite. Just don't do the tinkly piano yeah. music and, uh, you know, we're all in it together sort of thing. It's interesting how in, in a crisis, our brains go quite literal. It's yeah. Well, in, in, when we're not in lockdowns, not every single ad shows a social setting. You know, some ads yeah, it, show totally ridiculous circumstances yeah. Yeah. all the time, yeah. and some of them are highly effective. You know, we don't yeah. need to see on the screen our own lives reflected back at us to hundred percent to yeah. influence. Our and, and actually, if you think about it, a movie, is where you go to escape. You don't go yeah. to a movie to see people on a Zoom call. You know mm. what I mean? And that would be the most insane thing, wouldn't it? You go to a movie to be taken escape from. You know, from reality, and I, th- I think that's what people forgot. But the next thing, of course, was what we were trying to do as well, going back 18 months ago, was look at the evidence for what happens when brands stop advertising during recessions and how long does it take those brands to recover. Now, what I found was it was very difficult to find the evidence for what happens. There's a really good Harvard Business Review. I need to go back and look it up. There's a very good Harvard Business Review article, which was a bit more nuanced than the average article. But a lot of the research I found or dug up was sort of based on theoretical models of what might happen if you stop advertising. So the reason I certainly responded to your article so well was that actually today, I don't think I've seen the strength of evidence and presented over a longer period of time as well before but that was certainly my own experience that's what I think it sort of it gave proper evidence and support for a debate we've been having for sort of uh, quite a while. No this data set was luck I was in I was talking to the right sponsor at the right time and they happened to have two data sets which covered 20 years of advertising spend and sales time locked for a very large number of brands in the category and we had a very talented masters by research candidate at the time, Adam Gelzinas, who was one of my co-authors, and, and it was very serendipitous. The way this research has been picked up in is framing it around a recession, but to be very honest, the data itself doesn't capture recessionary conditions. Mm-hmm. So, even though those twenty years span the global financial crisis. Australia, because it's the Australian market, it was quite protected. It was one of the few markets that didn't have the fallout that many did, which isn't to say we can't learn from it to what could happen now. You know, the consequences could be larger or because a lot of a lot of panic buying or even just a lot of stocking up in some categories can defy what in other recessions. I don't know about you, but alcohol sales went through the roof in Australia. I don't know about <laughs> other markets. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we like it's our- quite funny actually. On the System One database, because we test every category, we can see not only the amount of advertising, but the quality of advertising that changes. So the uh, have a guess, right? What was in the top three? Mm-hmm. See if you can guess the number one category that went up in terms of emotional response post-pandemic. Oh, goodness. Can... You'll kick yourself when I tell you, but it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, I say it's not a big one. It might be a big one, but. It's not necessarily a high-profile category. Oh, gosh, I have no idea. So I'm just going to have a stab in the dark. Diapers? Close. Oh, you're very, okay. very close. You're very close. So, so, so yeah, number two. So number three was alcohol went up in terms of people's emotional response to alcohol advertising. I think it was about half a star. So we have a five-star system, and it was a good half-a-star jump when people saw alcohol. Chocolate confectionery was similar. I think that was number four. Number two was baby products. So you, to, so you got number two. Number uh, one was pets. So pe- any pet advertising went up by something like an entire star. So it was almost like in, you know, in tough times, our, you know, affection for, for pets. And, and I think I'm right in saying that, you know, demand for cats and dogs and, you know, so on just went through the roof as well yeah. when we all went into lockdown. Yeah, that was the, the most, the highest lift in, in creative, you know, creative star rating. No. Was, uh, post-pandemic was in pets <laughs> i can relate to that our fairy friend was a blessing in lockdown yeah. times not that we had nearly the lockdowns in other parts of the world so i can't cry too many tears others have had yeah. it a lot harder 
True, very true. So listen, tell me, tell me about the, a little bit about the methodology. So how did you go about this piece of research? It was quite simple. So we, we had these 20, we had this long-term data set where we were able to monitor brands that advertised, some advertised on and off, some were continuously advertised and others had, had very long periods of stopping advertising. So our first task was to define what an advertising stop was and so we took a brand's average spend over that 20 years and any year where spend dropped below one percent of that average we class that as an annual stop in a calendar year and that captured complete darkness but it also captured when brands that would typically spend millions of dollars dropped to just a few thousand. And the media that was captured in this data set was uh, TV, press, out of home, magazines, radio. So all of your classic brand building, online display. So they, they, may, they may have been doing digital activation in store activity. Yes, yeah. we don't know. And obviously in recent years, the boom in spend in those particular spaces, so search and social video, those aren't captured in this data set. Yeah. But you know, the predominant spend across in this category over that period was TV. And so we advertised those years that were stopped. And then what we did was we went to the year directly before the last advertised year and looked at that as the base line of sales and then indexed future years against that so we could quantify sales changes over time. So it's by no means a causal analysis. We can't say that stopping advertising caused the changes, you know, compared to something like a split cable experiment where you've got matched markets and compare an advertised market with a non-advertised market. That's not what we're doing. But despite that, the, the findings were, and despite the fact that there was a lot of change in the market over that time, the numbers were surprising. There was a lot of variability mm. around the averages that we reported, but the averages were quite compelling. They weren't they? Mm. Because the thing that springs to my mind quickly when, and I know you do answer this, was because it, it, similarly with, you know, Binet and Fields ESOV model, where if you're a bigger brand, you can sustain an underspend. And if you're a smaller brand, it, it, it's harder to kind of go up the curve. It struck me that, and going back to my previous experience, when I've worked on bigger brands, it, it, you, you tend to weather the storm of underinvestment slightly more easily. And is that what the data shows, that the size of brand made a difference in terms of what you, the, the likely impact? Yes. So we beyond the overall result, we did look at conditions. So we split cases by brand size, so small, medium and large, and we split them by previous trajectory. So we're, before the cessation, mm, yeah. were they growing and, or declining or, or stable? And we did that by applying the same approach backwards as we did forwards. We looked at the, advertise, the, the last advertised year before the last advertised year and determined what trajectory those brands were on in that time frame. But your question on brand size, we found that small brands declined, the, the decline was more common and also of a greater magnitude than for medium and bigger brands that could, on average, coast for a, a year or two. So that's where that plane analogy comes in, you know, when you're in the air yes. and you turn off the engines, you can coast for a little bit, but eventually the descent starts. That said, the plane analogy kind of implies that once the descent starts, it kind of happens exponentially. You fall off a cliff and you dive out of the sky. But we found the declines were quite, I wouldn't say linear, but gradual. Mm. They eventually tapered off. But that's because other things than advertising affect sales. You have your yeah. physical availability. You have other yeah. activities that are propping those sales off. And the, and the habits consumers have built over potentially a lifetime are just continuing on without that reinforcement. But eventually, because you're right, because that was the other that was the other sort of thing I'm easily wondered about as well was the whether brands are growing or declining beforehand. Because of course, if you're a declining brand, you get to a point where advertising becomes too expensive because you your sales are shrinking, you can't afford to advertise. Equally, when you're a growing brand, you're in the opposite situation where you can afford to advertise more because you know you're maybe getting more physical availability. You're you know you're generating more revenue. You can afford to then invest more in advertising. So, did it make a big difference the trajectory you were on prior to the decision to change or to go dark? Did that make a big difference? Yeah, absolutely. That was a, a strong explanatory variable. Declining brands continue to decline inevitably. 
and at immediately and at a greater rate than stable or growing brands. And you'd expect that because you know, you've withdrawn support. Why would sales go up unless you're reinvesting that money in, in something else to prop them up? Or you might be pulling out of all sorts of investment in that brand, not just advertising. Mm. And that's been one of the questions around the research was what kind of brand stops advertising for several years? Surely they're all troubled brands. But really, we had similarly sized groups of cases. About a third were declining, a third were stable and a third were growing. You know, Why does someone stop advertising a growing brand? And perhaps it's because of that portfolio dynamic where, you know, this year we said we'd advertise on this other brand and this year we won't and, and this year we can't afford to advertise on, on this brand so we'll just have to see how it goes. And But the growing brands, they tended to become re-advertised within a year or two if they continued to grow without advertising. So they fell out of the data set pretty quickly. That's interesting. I think your portfolio effect is probably a very big factor actually because whenever I've worked in larger organisations with portfolios, you're always trading them off and there's always a there's the cash cow or the brand that's kind of, you know, that, that's been around for a long time that, you know, is very profitable, but no one's spending on anymore, that you just spend the profit on that one to grow the new one and that sort of thing. So I, I think the portfolio effects is probably, you know, one of the, it could be one of the big influencing factors as to why some, you know, some brands do go dark, perhaps, you know, because mm. again, if it was your own company and you're a one brand company, it would seem an odd thing to do, mm. you know, but I think in a portfolio company where they're having to make choices between brands, it's very often the case that they segment them into different mm. sort of strategic roles. Yeah, and- I, I think part of the reason because that's part of what motivated the research, we were seeing more cessation either for some marketers were coming out and saying I don't believe in advertising I want to use that money for innovation or or something else because I I don't feel compelled that advertising is the best investment other people were using that strategy of this year we'll advertise these brands and next and then next year and then switch it around the next year and so we were curious well is that is that a good is I don't know about strategy because it comes from also the idea that if we don't if we reduce the amount of overlapping advertising within our portfolio will compete less directly with one another which duplication of purchase tells us there's that's flawed thinking there is an expected level of of sharing that will happen based on size alone you know you you should be trying to grow all of your brands and some of it will become at the expense of some members of your portfolio or vice versa but we were wondering well is that a good strategy or is that having a sort of a net harm on 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 either the individual brands or the portfolio as the whole? Because it's an empirical question. Not that we looked at portfolios in the research, but generally, you know, we found that some brands... So so if you are going to make a decision of we don't want to advertise a brand, the safer bet, so coming back to the it's all about odds, the safer bet, cut advertising on your bigger brand. But at the same time, the spend on your brand is... On the biggest brand is highly efficient. And it's it's also, highly efficient, yes, yeah. And it's also not a fail-safe. So... 40% of big brand cases in year one still declined. You know, it's not a 50-50 chance because that's another bit of the, the research that's a bit lost and hasn't gotten as much airtime is there's the average magnitude of decline and it is an average and, and we can't confuse that every brand is the average brand. Perhaps no brands are the average brand in terms of that specific score or, or performance. But around that average, you know, some brands did grow without advertising support now if you're a big brand you are less likely to decline but still 40 percent of big brands did decline and i was asked is there a point where you're so big that it doesn't matter one of the 40 percent of cases was the biggest brand in the data set so that kind of defies (laughs) setting that that kind of threshold so you're it's all about odds well also because you're right actually when when i looked at the scatter uh, you know you took the averages but the scatter was quite Mm. extreme wasn't it There, there were there are brands right at the extremes, you know, performing ahead and behind. Mm. But the, the averages was quite stark, of course. You know, was it 16% decline in the first year, 25% by the second year of the data set that went dark, which is yes, quite and, a and then by stunning statistic. Yes, and by the third year, it was down to an index of 64, so a 36% yeah. drop. And by the fourth year, no brand was at or above the sales level that it was in its last advertised year. So, Well, that's interesting. What, so the entire group of, of yes. brands who had stopped advertising by four, none of them, even the best one, had not gone 
had not grown. Is that right? So uh, you've got a bit of a selection bias going on in the cases because each year some cases drop out. In the first year, we had 57 cases. That decreases to 34 cases in the second year because some of those brands get re-advertised. Some of those brands, uh, okay. some of those okay. brands get delisted or we hit the end yep. of the data set. Some have asked, well, is there, a, is there a bias? And so what we did to kind of address that, because at the end of the day, the variation around the average, some fell out of the market quite quickly and they were typically, and the delistings were typically the small or medium brands. They typically weren't big brands. That said, the growing brands in the data set were also typically small brands. So you've got two mm -hmm. levels of extremes there and the growing brands were quickly re-advertised. So if anything, the variation around that average becomes less and less as time goes on. But yeah. to address it either way, we looked at only those cases which had at least five years continuously unadvertised and stayed in the market for the duration of the data set. And the pattern was by and large the same. If anything, it, mm. it became a bit more linear with a 9% percent drop year on year over time. That's interesting. Because mm. also I spent probably more of my career working on smaller, medium-sized challenger brands than I have the brand leaders. And of course, you know, with, with a challenger brand, very often you're gaining physical distribution in that part of your life cycle. So I can see why actually a growing brand, you've got the double, the twin engines of mental availability and physical availability yeah. being turned on. When you're a mature brand or you're the category leader, very often your physical availability is pretty much maxed out. And so what, what very often happens in my experience is, as a brand owner, you resort to kind of tactical things like deep discounts and, you know, heavy promotions to try and drive extra growth because you've kind of saturated the market mm. sort of thing. So I think very so I, I can see why the growing brands are in a, are in a good position. And, and we did. It, it's anecdotal because it's a relatively small number of cases. And the work we're doing now to extend the research is to get many more cases. One of my colleagues who I'm working with, Palin Pua, she's doing an extension to 20 consumer goods categories, and we've now got more than 300 cases. So we're gathering more evidence. But wow. when, when we looked at this particular data set and at the growing cases, when we split them out by small and larger brands, there was quite an interesting pattern that emerged. And that was, so for the medium and large, because we combine them, the, the bigger growing brands, they, without advertising, they pretty much exclusively continued to grow or remained on an upward trajectory in year one and year two, and then they were all re-advertised. But for the small growing brands, they immediately reversed their sales trajectory, almost all eight of the 10 small growing brand cases. And then by year two, all of them were declining. So that wow. tells you that for a small growing brand, or it, it, it indicates that those small brands will fail to reach their full potential perhaps without the support of mass reach advertising. And that's because, you know, they are smaller brands who have fewer buyers who are slightly less loyal and, and think about them less often. So the, they're very fragile memory structures. A lot of people don't know about them. So they've got a big job to do to increase their mental availability in concert or in, in ten at the same time as their physical availability. That makes complete sense, actually. And, and your mental, it makes sense your mental availability model, doesn't it, in terms of what comes to mind easily, what associations are created. You know, that, that makes complete sense. A bigger brand has established more of that with more people over a longer period of time, and, and that'll, that'll be harder to lose, whereas for a growing brand, you'll lose that quicker. Or you won't have as much of that in the first place, I suppose, to yeah. rely on. You've got fewer. Yeah. You've got fewer market-based assets to leverage. So yeah. you know that's why smaller brands need to overspend, to, running hard to stand still, because they're because yeah. ads have a tougher job. You know, people are inherently blinder to them than the brands they already use. And so it makes complete sense. Yeah, yeah. Getting that cut through is really challenging, making advertising less. It's so it's, it's it really rings true, actually, with a lot of the work we do at System One, that because we did a piece last year called Scaling Up Without Screwing Up. And we looked at our database of 
everybody who had advertised for the first time versus the database average. And what we found is it takes on average four years for the creative performance of a new advertiser to reach the performance of a standard advertiser on a database because a new advertiser doesn't have the, we call it fluency. Fluency was our word for you know distinctive assets, basically. But you don't have the fluency in place. And you typically, what happens as well, which is quite interesting, is that new TV advertisers tend to use their digital assets or, or an approach that's more similar to direct response rather than doing more brand building characters and scenarios and, and, and more emotive advertising. So what we found, is it actually took four years for the average new advertiser to match the standard on the database overall. Which, and actually, from what you're saying, is it's more important for a new you know a, a young brand or a you know a small brand that's fast growing to create those memory structures yeah. so that they've got a double job on their hands and if you're fixating on fluency a young brand that's advertising for the first time advertising is has a really important role in in building distinctive assets because the goal of, of a distinctive asset is to be recognizable irrespective of attitudinal or behavioral loyalty mm. you're driving down the road and you see the McDonald's arches, and it doesn't matter if you haven't been there in a year, or if you hate the brand, or if you love the brand, you will recognize who they are. The asset is doing its job. And you know, unlike many things that are profoundly influenced by brand size, distinctive assets can defy that because people can learn associations and to recognize brands that they don't use if executed well in advertising over a longer period of time to reinforce those memory structures. So for a, a first-time advertiser, if their assets are either limited to their packaging, if they're a, if they're a packaged good, or, or limited to the direct experience, so in, in perhaps a service or a website, that's only going to be learnt by people that are already using the brand, whereas mass reach advertising can reach far beyond. Yeah. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense that. I was intrigued as to why. Does your data tell, give any advice on what happens when brands stop advertising and then they start advertising again? Have they lost any momentum in that? Because I think the reason I'm asking is that I think last year, a huge temptation of advertisers would be to do the let's have a year off. Let's kind of, you know, you know, kind of go dark and then put the lights back on again once we're, we're safely through this period of change. Mm. It, is there a long term consequence to making that decision in your data? Again, I would say this anecdotal because it's only a handful of cases. And, you know, the Ehrenberg Bass Institute is very much about empirical generalization. We like to work with big data sets, repeated observations. So we did in this instance have 14 cases that took, if you want to call it sort of a hiatus or a pause from mm -hmm. advertising yeah. in a year and then came back on it on air very quickly. And of those 14 cases, five were previously growing, five were stable and four were declining prior to the stop. Fast forward to the year where they have re-advertised, are they on the same trajectory? Well, for the growing and stable brands, only half of them had maintained their trajectory, whereas more of the other half had gone into decline. So hmm. what kind of tells you is it, it may take longer than another year of advertising after the hiatus to bring that brand back to its original sales level. And possibly that's because of other things that are lost not just advertising in that intervening time period. So the physical availability component, which we don't pick up in this study, you know, retailers for the consumer packaged goods side of things can preference advertised brands over unadvertised ones because they see the going dark as, a, as an implicit negative signal. And so the advertised brands can get opportunities in terms of activations and, and the like yeah. that, that others don't. And keep that goodwill. Hundred percent. That that you know that's an, an under recognised power actually of advertising. You know, whenever you know, I've worked in FMCG, but the ability to go to your big customers and go, we've got this very big advertising campaign that's going to drive lots of mental availability. We need to match that with an equivalent level of physical availability and getting your customers to stock more, increase the range, extra displays, all that kind of stuff. So it, it's an incredibly potent weapon of course if you turn up and go we haven't got any advertising happening this year 
you, you, you're not going to win the battle in store for you know for all the best displays mm, and so that's a very good point yeah, and this particular data set which was alcoholic beverages they're selling into bars restaurants yes. chains things like that and if they have advertising and collateral then that can help with gaining yeah. and retaining those contracts totally if you're a bar you're putting your own cash flow into the stock and if it's not going to rotate or sell then that's a big cost to you. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Now it's really cool. Just a slight, slight sort of pivot actually away well, to a different. So consistency matters, doesn't it? I think that's you know that if you take a take a year off, what you're suggesting is then when you come back on, you're likely to have suffered in terms of trajectory. Because it does. Do you have any? It might be a system one question. This, but is there any equivalent in terms of creative? Going back to our previous conversation about changing creative and changing agencies. I'm just wondering if there's any evidence out there about what happens. So you, so you answer the question, what happens when brands stop advertising? I wonder if there's a, what happens when brands change their creative? Because if you lose all the memory structures and familiarity, and I wonder if there's also a, maybe this is a separate bit of research. We can- yeah, it's interesting because there's change creative and there's change creative, right? So there's change creative as yeah. in you imagine tomorrow M&Ms drop their characters and change tack that way versus changing out a different creative that still features that distinctive asset. At the same time, I would say that distinctive assets as a branding device and branding generally, branding is a necessary but insufficient condition for success. So because they're not, they can get attention, but part of what my research showed a while back, and I'm pivoting on to, to something a bit related um, to your question, so steer me back when the time suits. But in the experiments that I ran, I looked at ads that executed the brand name alone versus executed, and this was print advertising because I could manipulate it as a very naive advertising creator. Mm. I couldn't create a Mm. fully formed TV ad. But in these experiments, we had matched print ads, one that had the brand name, one that had a distinctive asset. And we forced it that the distinctive asset had to be as strong as it possibly could be, 100% famous and 100% unique. And what we found was is that in the print medium, uh, a visual asset like a character or a logo could sometimes equal the brand name, but a tagline, for instance, was a very poor replacement. There are different types and and we encourage advertisers or, or brands to develop a palette of assets so you can pick the best asset for the medium that helps it stand yes. out because it's not just it's there, it will get noticed, it's there and it will do its branding job. So there is a degree of risk if you are relying heavily on assets, if you if they aren't super, super strong. And even then, it's a harder memory task. You see the brand name, it activates the right node in memory. You see a distinctive asset like a Coca-Cola bottle and the expectation is that that memory will activate and it will bring the brand out of your brain. Or you see the Subway sandwich, which was the, the ad I referred to earlier. But for some people, it might not do that because memory is fallible. It might just be taken on as the creative. And so I did find that colour, even when extraordinarily strong, was often processed not as a branding device without any shape paired with the brand name or paired with another asset, it just didn't work. So the execution of the asset is really important to achieving its goal as a branding device. And then branding, branding is just one part of the ad. You know, you, it's pro- arguably the most important part in that if it isn't attributed to the brand, it can't succeed. But then there's that special source on top. There's the creativity, there's the message, it's the emotional response, as you know, mm. that, that make those memories more retrievable at the right time. I'd be fascinated to look at, wouldn't it, when a brand stops using an asset. There's one in the UK, insurance, another insurance example, actually, called Go Compare, which is an insurance website. And it had this opera, this opera singer going, Go Compare, you know, all this sort of thing. And... Um, Slightly irritating, I have to say, but incredibly hard to ignore and very well associated with the, you know, go compare comparison site, which is brilliant. And, and they interestingly, they dropped the character and actually have brought the character back in mm. a couple of years later. So there must be some discussion, but I'd love to see what the data says in terms of when brands stop using their assets or change mm. their creatives, see if that has no, I remember there was a spoof, or well, just, it was a joke, the Mortine had dropped Morty the Fly and they tried to create a campaign out of 
Morty's gone, Morty's dead, but no, actually he's not. That's really marketers talking to marketers as opposed to marketers yeah, marketing to totally. consumers. All, um, all that's we've copped up and need to pretend that actually this was the plan all along, everybody. Yeah, you know, exactly, like, exactly. <laughs> or someone got fired. What you, What have you done? They have to sort of quickly backtrack and but, pretend, oh, it was this grand master plan. Yeah. Yeah. But it would be interesting to execute the same ads, one with a recognisable character or not, and, and see the differentials. Yeah, no, no we, we should do that. I, I know um, Orlando would love that. He's, he is... He is Mr. Fluent Device himself, I think he's he's always talking about the power and the fact that we're we're not leveraging our fluent devices enough. Mm. Actually, another British brand I worked on, the drinks category, Ribena, was a fascinating one because in the UK, black currants are, are, are very popular. They're, they're quite a niche fruit because there's only certain hemispheres or latitude. I forget which around is latitude that you can grow black currants, and so something silly like 65% of Europe's black currants are grown in the UK. And Ribena's made from black currant sort of thing. But actually, when we tested Ribena on the System 1 database, the, the black currant itself, the fruit itself, was the fifth most recognisable fluent device on the database. So because everyone here grows up with black currant squash or black currant cordial as their sort of drink, the, the, and 98% of all UK-grown black currants end up in a bottle of Ribena. It's just, it's insane. And in fact, having worked on the brand, there are something like 25 big farms in the UK that are dedicated only just to making this for Ribena. So it's almost the entire supply chain is kind of, you know, sewn up by them, which is great. But it was just amazing. It was just stunning. I just when I realized that what we had in this brand, just the berry itself was the fifth most recognizable device character in the marketplace was astonishing yeah. and this goes back to the you know the brand manager turnover thing because of course the temptation every year was to go oh everyone knows about the black current that, that's old that's you know that's you know that's in the past and we should do something much cooler much funkier you know and actually when we tested it we had this lovely poster actually which just had a bottle of ribena it was a beautiful kind of you know summer day summer's day scene in the uk grass on the ground and this huge kind of black current explosion on, on you know in the poster it was, it was beautiful but you'd look at it and you go there's nothing groundbreaking or particularly new about the poster at all and yet it was tested on system one as the most effective outdoor poster they've ever tested mm. because what it did is it triggered all those really positive mental associations of summertime berries ribena british and, and it just aced it on everything it's just uh, really cool mm. now i have to find a beautiful quote from the book that you're that you have in your hands ah this one yes so we're audio so let me describe it yeah. for everybody listening so this is the uh, this is a must buy i should actually say so a little plug because we haven't done a plug yet for how brands grow so how brands grow i met byron by the way in 2010 i think at britvic where i was working and uh, got a copy of the book then so i was a like to think of myself as an early adopter, but uh, it's the one book that whenever anyone says to me they're going into marketing, what should I read? It is always How Brands Grow because it provides, in my view anyway, more empirical evidence for the, the rules of marketing, the laws of marketing than I think anyone else has ever done before. So that's really mm. cool. But the next book to, I don't know why I'm put. you see, <laughs> Nicole, you can see what I'm doing now. And, and this is really stupid, right? Because for those listening, I am pointing to a book on the screen mm. while recording audio, mm. which is insane. So I'll stop doing that because none of you listening will have realized what I was doing. Anyway, Building Distinctive Brand Assets. So that's a thoroughly recommended book, Oxford Publishers. So yes, look it up. but I just found the quote that I think really sums it up, particularly what you're saying about Ribena as well, is that Jenny says in the final pages, much of an effective distinctive asset strategy is rooted in quiet behind the scenes discipline of persisting on a path of consistent, excellent execution. Oh, very good. And and it, yes. it really is, you know, we're, we're so caught up in change and, and things in life do change, there is comfort in familiarity. And, and I'm not just talking about nostalgia, but in terms of how memory works, you know, memory is flawed and fallible and a big role of, of marketing, a very underappreciated role of marketing is its job of, of being primarily defensive and refreshing, refreshing and reinforcing those memory structures that already exist in our heads that we struggle to access day mm. in, day out. And that applies to distinctive assets, but it applies to to other things that people think about brands. Such strong advice that that is really good. Is it? I think it's a is it a Jeff Bezos quote that said, "Tell me what isn't going to change, and I'll build my business around that." 
because we're obsessed, aren't we? We're going, let's ride the change and what's changing and let's do that. And, and actually, there's a lot to be said for looking at what hasn't changed about your brand, that your brand has already got that you can leverage rather than trying to, you know, move your brand into a new segment or try and do something different. Yeah, that's really good advice. Yeah. Listen, let's let's round up then with the let me ask you this. So what's the one question that you think we should be discussing in the marketing community that we're not? I think it might actually be a boring question, but it's a challenge that I come up against all the time. It actually starts with another question, which is how do you signal that you are getting better at creative effectiveness? And I would argue that that's not showing better ROI and that's not necessarily showing a, a slate of awards. But in order to signal that, then the flow on questions, are you measuring the things that matter? Are you prioritizing behavioral measures and selecting the, the right diagnostic measures? But underpinning all of that is, are you collating and centralizing the information in your organization so you have mm. access to your advertising history and performance? So mm. what precludes a lot of the research I want to do is organizations don't necessarily have short memories, but they have short databases. Yep. And so there's a lot of talk about short-termism and long-termism, and it's often future-focused. We need to be focused on long-term brand performance, so thinking not just the next year or the next three or the next five. I would also argue it needs to go backwards. You know, learning is limited if, it's, if it exists only for the last campaign because ideally you want to learn from your successes and your failures and the repeatability of those over time. You don't want to start every yeah. campaign from a blank page. So I would say that one question worth discussing is how are we centralizing our data? How are we, we mapping our yeah, history? Yeah, that's a cool question. Yeah. And, and you are absolutely right, of course. In most large organizations, corporate memory is awful. Absolutely awful. Mm. It's different in smaller business. I find smaller business, interestingly, where you've got the founder. You've got so much kind of locked in the kind of founder's head very often. But in big businesses, because of the rotation and a new CMO comes in and everything changes. But actually, it's quite funny because you made me smile when you gave that answer because I joined System One a couple of years ago. I was a client, so I spent all my time on the client side making advertising, running marketing teams, that kind of thing. And then I joined System One because I thought they were ace. But one of the things I've been trying to get System One to do is like, you know, because when, when you're in a marketing team, very often the knowledge sits in the insight department who tend to guard that information quite tightly and they don't let it out. And it's a really weird behavior. I'm going to upset some people now, so I'm kind of apologizing in advance, but it used to drive me nuts as a CMO because I'd go, what? Every person involved in the making of advertising should know this information. It should be available to everybody easily and quickly so we can all make decisions. What I don't want to do is go and brief the insight department, disappear for four weeks and come back and go, aha, and here's the answer sort of thing. Make it available to everyone. And so at System 1, what, uh, what I've been working on was, it was this, our database is called Test Your Ad. It's also where you go to test your own ad. You, a bit like a wee transfer site. You just upload the ad. It goes into test, come back. So you've got a report in 24 hours that you can send a link to anybody everywhere. So it's not, you don't have to be in the database to view it. But also the database has got 50,000 ads in. So you can just benchmark you can benchmark till the cows come home, you know, benchmark against, you know, the country, the category, the, the genre, whatever you want to do sort of thing. So it's really ace. But but the sort of battle I had is I want that to be in the ad agency, in the media agency. I want that to be in the brand manager. I want everyone to have it. But of course, whenever I speak to, you know, the kind of head of insight at sort of big company incorporated, they were like, we can't possibly give this information out because this is our job to hold tight onto the information. I'm like, no, oh. because you're not going to improve advertising. The way to improve advertising is for the creative in the ad agency to have access to the information, the brand manager writing the brief to have access, the media owner that's airing it to understand it, you know, mm. get it out there. So anyway, so you, I love your question. To be honest, it's terribly common what you've just described. At the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, we do a lot of executive education and we, we have this two-day workshop called How Brands Grow Live, obviously leveraging the How Brands Grow uh, book. Yeah, quite And we very much find that in terms of when sponsors of the Institute and those trainings go particularly well, it's when we're, we actively encourage, you need diversity in the room. You need your marketers, you need mm. your salespeople, you need your financial people, yeah. you know, and generally if it comes from the top down, 
it's going to be embedded and, and, and taken on board. And so that's what often leads to sort of a, a revolutionary adoption of evidence-based marketing practice much more quickly. Totally agree. I totally agree. Because the, the people that get most excited by it actually are in the boardroom. They, yeah. they are, the, the CFO goes, I've had conversations with CFOs and they've just gone, what, you can measure advertising? I never knew you could measure advertising. And then weirdly what happens is the CFO almost becomes your ally. They're yeah. like, oh no, we must protect the marketing budget because we know how important it is. Yeah. And then of course you end up, you know, in those boardroom battles where you know, you've been tasked with cutting 50% of the cost base of the organisation, usually everyone goes, right, let's start with the marketing budget because that's the biggest and and then you end up kind of taking all the costs there. But um, of course, if you've got evidence-based, you know, that marketing science behind you and everyone understands it, then they're likely to go, ooh, that's a big decision, right? Because you're cutting our long-term potential, you're cutting our dividends in future years, you're reducing our share price growth potential, et cetera, et cetera. So it suddenly changes. I love that. It's, it's really strong advice. This what you do needs to be in the boardroom and needs and that's where the smart cmos are going to succeed because if you win the boardroom battle you then give permission Mm. to uh, do all the right things and you buy yourself your freedom to be able to advertise in what otherwise might have been dark years and uh, and to be successful Mm. and then give the people that make that this is the other thing i going back to my system one point that felt passionate about is the the insight team don't make the advertising the ad agency make the advertising the brand managers brief the advertising and manage the process so give the data to the people that are using it day to day the insight people can be the gurus they can be the sort of you know the sages that kind of you know give you the expert advice and so on and actually they should be the trainers and mentors that train everyone else on how to interpret the data and use it and so on but get it out there definitely so i'm listen i'm really pleased for you and for us that you know the report's gone far and wide because it, it, it needs to which is good mm. listen thank you so much let me just round up by saying if people want to get in touch with you or Ehrenberg Bass and keep the conversation going how can they do that uh, sure so our website is marketingscience.info uh, you can go there there's the ability to contact and send in an inquiry or in touch with me I'm on LinkedIn Nicole Hartnett yeah I'd love to chat with anyone that's interested in the fantastic thank you very much we really appreciate your time really enjoyed the conversation thanks for coming on no thank you very much my pleasure. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation there with Dr. Nicole Hartnett from Ehrenberg Bass. Thank you very much to her for joining me and explaining a bit more about this research, which I think is incredibly important and adds to the overall conversation about what to do during recessions and uh, what not to do in terms of going dark. If you enjoyed that, then please check out other episodes. And if you'd like to leave me a review, I'd love that. Please go to Apple Podcasts and let me know what you think. Uh, If you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter at UncensoredCMO. And you can also find me on LinkedIn where I'm John Evans. Please do get in touch. And if you've got any ideas for future episodes or guests, do let me know that as well. Thanks again for listening.